Good evening, everyone. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm joined by my partner in crime, Shane Douglas Keene. And tonight we're going to be talking with Jeremy Hepler, who's the author of The Boulevard Monster and his newest novel, Cricket Hunters. So, Jeremy, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, our uh, pleasure. Definitely, definitely our pleasure. Also, apropos of nothing other than we have you on the show, I'm reading this really fucking creepy story in this Midnight in the Graveyard anthology called Justin's Favorite. Right, yeah, that was my contribution. I was I was so lucky to be a part of that anthology with, you know, like Robert McCammon, Keelan Patrick Burke, these names of people that are I've always looked up to and that are awesome. So it was real it was real awesome to be a part of that anthology. Through, oh yeah, uh, Silver Shamrock, you know, who also did Cricket Hunters. So, yeah, that that anthology, I love it too. I've read it. I think I've read some of the stories in there twice. It is, it's a great anthology. It's, it's I a just, good one. yeah, I just started reading them this morning, but it's it's definitely it hooks you in, and so far there's not a bad story in the bunch. Right. I mean, you got people. I mean, all across the board, there's so many types of stories that it's. It's not like some anthologies that where every story is pretty much the same or the same style of horror. There's 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 a little bit of something for everybody for every type of horror in that anthology. It's it's a good mix. Um, yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it. I can't wait to get to the rest of the stories. That's always I'm I'm an impatient person, so it's always hard when I go, oh, I want to read that one and that one and that one and that one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get that way, too, sometimes. I still have to check that one out. I should be starting it here pretty soon. Yeah, but, when, even when I read anthologies, I do them. I, I can't read them all straight through because I, I do. I'll get burned out on any short, but I'll read, you know, two or three short stories and then I'll read a novel and then I'll go back and read a few more. But it takes me a while to read anthologies. But that's that's the way I do it, too. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll get burned out if I read too many. I used to work as a slush reader for a couple of magazines like Lullaby Hearst and Dark Discoveries. For years, I was – for two years, I was doing – and, if, you know, all day, every day, you're reading, like, 20 or 30 submissions of short stories. And after a while, I, you, I got to where I couldn't read that many in a row anymore. It's like – I don't know. I just get burned out on them. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm not sure when you – did that but uh when you were reading slush for those magazines out of curiosity was that before like the boulevard monster or at that point had you already published that no it, it was before it was um that would have been it was actually that that was around i guess 2005 or six and um i'd been working in as, as a home health care and and me and my wife we were going to have a son and we were like well one of us is going to stay home and so she's a teacher and we were like well if i stay home we just minimize a little bit you know i'll be a stay-at-home dad and she would work we would all have the summers off together and whatnot and um so that's when i started i was like well i'm at home with the kid i have all this time now and so i i was like well i need to do something so i started writing a little more and then i also joined on with uh dark discoveries i'd done lullaby hearse which was a smaller magazine before that uh reading slush and i joined on with james beach because he ran dark discoveries then and i started reading slush and actually that that really helped me grow a lot as a writer those two years because i started doing you know reading submissions just doing slush readings and really you learn so much what not to do when you're doing that because you're reading so many 
um, different approaches from different people. And, but that was, that was years before I actually started writing a book, but that was when I was first starting to write more short stories and get them published. Um, and it's because I was at home and had the time really. And then James started letting me do book reviews for the magazine. So I would also then get uh, ARCs of books and I started doing some book reviews that would get published in the magazine. But after a while, I kind of got, I didn't get burned out. I kind of started getting burned out, I guess, on reading the short stories, but I also learned that I didn't have enough time to work on my own writing when I was spending that many time reading that many submissions and doing that many book reviews. And so that's when I backed out and started focusing more on my own writing than doing that. Yeah, and that's that's always interesting because, um, like, you're the first person I think we've talked to where that's kind of you had done that prior to writing. But I've always heard that where, um, you know, other writers that have done slush readings, you know, they when they're asked to give advice to, you know, aspiring writers, they always say, you know, see if you can like volunteer to read slush because, you know, it kind of helps you learn things it's almost kind of like a crash course in writing because like you said you see all these different styles and you know you could see kind of what works and what doesn't sure you see and you see so many different things it becomes more it becomes so obvious that there are you know you would open every day i would just give myself okay i'm gonna read 12 today because it's a lot to try to read 12 different people And so you open it. And after a while, at first, I would try to read everyone all the way through. And I guess it's probably like every editor, every slush reader. After a while, you start to learn within the first page, you know whether or not there are certain ones that just jump out and grab you. And, that you know, this is this is different than the other eight I just read. This one is what did they do different? And so as a writer, also, I would try to just self-analyze and be like, what did this person do different than the other ones? What did they do? Why all of a sudden I feel this way about this that I didn't feel about the others. And so I would, I definitely did learn from it a great deal of what to do and what not to do when it came to the short story format, how to grab readers and what, because as somebody who's reading constantly for hours and hours, one after the other, you, you know, to stand out, takes a little more special, I guess, than somebody who just reads one story a day. Well, and that's one of the things about slush readers is that with most, you have to be damn good to even get them to notice you because of just what you just said. Like they could have read 12 stories in a row that the opening just bored the hell out of them, and then all of a sudden your story just pops at them. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and they can get into a mindset. Sometimes you do, you get in, and as the slush reader, you'll get into a mindset of bored as hell, and so then it's hard to it's even harder to impress me because I'm like, man, damn, two hours, nothing. I'm getting sick of this shit. Why am I doing this? And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is why I'm doing this. You know, so it, it's uh, but it, it was it was definitely a great experience to do that. And I got to also actually meet a bunch of writers and stuff because I would also get to correspond with them on a on a basic level. And so that was kind of cool, too. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's got to be kind of cool because you can kind of like build that network. And that's one of the great things I think about this genre is, you know, everybody's so willing to like, you know, help each other out or even just, you know, talk and like, you know, shoot the breeze or whatever. Um, I know we kind of skipped around, but um, like I was just curious, you know, 
what made you, because I'm assuming you started with short stories, when did you decide that, you know, you were ready to tackle your first novel, The Boulevard Monster, if that was, in fact, like the first one you actually wrote? Yeah, the that was, it was actually the second one I wrote, and, and the first one was kind of actually inspired me to do that, because I'd been writing short stories for a while, and I started um, getting into anthologies. Uh, you know, I started getting better, getting online sales, getting other sales throughout those the same years I was working at Dark Discoveries, and I started then getting anthologies with people like Jeff Strand and Weston Oates and Joe McKinney, and I was like, man, these guys are up there, and I'm getting in anthologies with them. And I was, so I was like, you know what? I want to I do something deeper. So I, I wrote a book, and then actually I didn't know what to do. I sent it to a bunch of agents. didn't work out. And so then I entered it in on Twitter on that, that they have pitch wars where you pitch your idea of a book. It has to be finished written. And then they give you a published writer that mentors you if they choose you out of all the people that pitch it. And they help you go through your book, edit your book. And then at the end of the whole process, which takes months, you pitch it to 40 agents who are ready to look at it. And going, I ended up winning. And so I got a mentor, a published writer. And I'm not going to, I won't say their name or anything, but um, I got them. And, but they were looking at my story and they started telling me, well, it's kind of a mystery, kind of supernatural. If, if you want to sell this, you need to have one genre. You need to have this. And so... We ended, through the process, they ended up, that first book I'd written, we changed the time period it was set in. We took out a lot of the supernatural, darker things I'd put in with the mystery elements I incorporated as well. And we pitched those 40 agents and there was nothing. And after that, I was like, I was a little disheartened. And I was like, man, you know, I don't, I hated the fact that I had changed it so much to try to sell it. And so I was like, you know what? I want to write something where I don't I don't give a fuck. I'm going to write what I want to write. I don't care if it's a mixture of genres. I don't care if it can sell or not sell. And I'd had the idea for the Boulevard Monster, so I sat down and wrote it. And uh took a while, and I wrote it, and I wrote it. And the only person that ever read it was my wife. And then I started sending it off to small presses because uh, I was like, I won't do the agent thing again because I was disheartened from all the rejection from that first story. And... Then I had I sent it to five different small presses and three of them immediately wanted to buy it. And I was like, yes, you know, so I learned the lesson the hard way of don't try to write to what you think will sell, but write what you want. Because when I wrote what I wanted, the way I wanted, it worked. When I tried to tailor make it due to that person, uh, that, that, that writer's advice to a market to try to sell it for a genre, it it bombed, you know, that first book. So, and I was like, well, I wasn't happy. I didn't feel good with it. So I was like, I'm going to write what I want to write. And then I yeah. wrote The Boulevard Monster. And that's what I think I've, every great author I can think of has somewhere or other at one time or other said, um, don't write what you think people want to read, write what you want to read. And yeah. I, that's that's rock solid advice, I think. I think that pays off more often than not. Yeah, and I, I learned it the hard way because I wrote an eighty thousand no word novel, changed it up, and all that, and then, but it did. It was a, it was a, it worked out for me, you know, in the end because then I and it made me just realize, you know what, if I'm gonna work that hard on something, screw that. If if it's not if nobody's gonna want it, then at least if I'm doing it and I want to do it, I want to do what I want to do, you know, and. It, it makes it better. It does it because I guess you're more invested in it. It puts more of you in it, and it's less of a machine and more of a more of a human element to the story. 
Yeah, that make that makes perfect sense. And you know, it's kind of cool that you know that's how it kind of ended up that you started it that way because, like you said, it makes you more invested and you know you got all this great you know response right off the bat with the three publishers and also you know it ended up being on the in the like final ballot for superior achievement in a first novel so that had to feel kind of cool that you know you went about it your own way and it had such a great response yeah it definitely it was it was a it was a shock, really, because when it first came out and, and Pete Kelt Bloodshot Books, like I said, it was basically that's me writing raw. I wrote that. Only my wife had read it. I don't have any beta readers. I never I've never even met face to face another person who's written a book really ever. And so I send it off. And then when Pete Kell got it, he read it to check the grammar errors and then basically published it. And so what it was was nobody's really edited it. Nobody has beta read it. Two people had read it when it was published. So when it started getting the, I was just praying to God I wouldn't get a million. This sucks, you know? <laughs> and I started getting a bunch of people liking it. And I was like, cool. And I wasn't even a member of the Horror Writers Association at the time. And I kind I knew about the awards, but I didn't really know a process or what it was. I was pretty naive to the process of it. And so when I learned that it was going to be, you know, on the preliminary ballot and got on the ballot, I, it, to me, it was less of a, prideful thing than it was it was a vote of confidence like I, my story before of see when you do it your way it works do what you want to do because that is working people are liking it the trying to do it for a specific genre or whatever didn't work but do, just do what you want to do and so it was more of a it was a confidence booster to keep working in that way to me more than it was a prideful thing and it was it was an honor to be on there um yeah, it was a it was a total surprise. And it's a formula that seems to uh, seems to work pretty well for you. Writing what you want to write has paid off for readers, um, as I've heard with the Boulevard Monster, but also as I know with some of your short stories and with your newest novel, Cricket Hunters. Yeah. Um. That that story is. Uh brilliant well thank you yeah that that was a i really enjoyed writing that one and that one actually started kind of out of fiasco kind of like the first one it seems like my good stories come out of bad ones we uh i had started writing a different novel before that and i was calling it demigod dreams and it was more of a werewolfish type story and i loved it and i was almost thirty thousand words into it and then uh we me and my family my wife and son we moved after living in the same place 13 years up in Amarillo, we moved down to central Texas to be closer to her father who had had a stroke and was ailing. So she wanted to be closer to her family. And in somewhere in the process of the move, our computer got jacked up and I lost that whole story. And so when we moved to a new house down here and I'd had that demigod dreams, I was like, yes, it's going to say book. Um, uh, I lost it totally. And when I couldn't recover it and I couldn't get anybody to recover my memory and I didn't use the cloud because I'm a little bit old school when it comes to technology. Um, I was like, well, I'm just I got pissed and I didn't and I didn't want to rewrite it, even though I have it. Basically, I haven't memorized what happened. I didn't want to. I was so pissed about it. I didn't want to do anything. So I, I was like, I'm going to start something new. And I totally just went with the Cricket Hunters idea that I'd had and started it and ended up working out good. So in a way, both of my first two novels came out of the novel before them failing or messing up in a way 
So both of them kind of born in hardship. Right, yeah. Um, what was I going to... Oh, something that really, really interested me about that novel, uh, Cricket Hunters, and sure. um, that you mentioned to me briefly before, you have some connection to uh, the mythologies and whatnot. And what I'm talking about for anybody listening is that there's a lot of... Uh, um, latin mythology slash spiritualism going on in there brujas magic spells sure um but you have a personal connection in a way to that can you tell us about that sure yeah uh my personal connection excuse me is um my wife uh trisha i've been i've been with her for 21 years we're married 19 living together 21 i'm 41 now and so since i was 20 me and her have been together and she's she's hispanic she grew up down about five minutes from the from the rio grand border in Macau, town, town, a town called mccallan and like when i first met her and started going down there you know a lot of her well some of her grandparents don't even really speak english so they're first second generations across and a lot of it all the stuff I know is through her and the way she was raised. And there would be things like um, when she was little, you know, they would do things like, well, if they thought you were sick, they would lay you on the table in the in the dining room and roll an egg over you. And if they thought the evil eye had gotten you because there were but it was all these different beliefs of where if somebody was envious of you or somebody uh, didn't like what you were doing and they didn't come and touch you before they left, the evil eye would get in you. And so if you got sick, it was because of that. And they would put her on the table when she was little and roll an egg up and down over her body to try. And the egg for, I'm not sure why, was supposed to suck the evil eye out and drain it out. And they would do similar things where if you were really scared, like, oh, I'm scared to do this or that, her grandma would lay her on the table and get a broom and say these things and brush brooms over her. And it's supposed to sweep away your fear to make you strong again. And so a lot of the stuff I learned was through her. And then like her mom also would tell us stories about how her and her sister, she had like five sisters. They would have people come over and read their tarot cards and stuff like that. So a lot of the, what's called curanderismo, which is, it's a form of white magic. It's a mixture of Hispanic folklore and Wiccan witchcraft, but also Catholicism. It's this huge mess of beliefs that down there is culturally all mixed together. And it's not like a Harry Potter lightning from a wand magic or witchcraft. It's more of a religion. You know, uh, you don't, I don't know, the same way Christians would pray for guidance or help or divine intervention they would say spells or do these rituals to try to achieve those same ends. And so in the book, that's what I wanted to try to use. And of course I use my imagination to skew the hell out of the rituals and darken them and stuff. But that's where the basis of it comes in is actually through my wife and her family and the stories I've heard from them. Yeah, and it's a good solid foundation for it. It worked really well. Yeah, and the the other thing that I really liked about Cricket Hunters, besides that, was I, I'm i always a sucker for these types of stories where it kind of has, like, alternate alternating timelines. And I was just curious if that was something that you had set out from the beginning, because it's kind of like part coming of age, like, because it 
flashes back to when the characters are younger. Mm-hmm. And then it also flashes to the present day. Was that something you had set out wanting to do, those kind of alternating timelines? It, it really wasn't. And I think I wrote short stories and did the slush ring and stuff for so many years um, that most of my ideas start out as a short story. So when I had the original idea, it was um, about it was the kid's story, you know, the young one. And that was my original idea was, ooh, this, you know, I can do the cricket hunters and then with with two, you know, crossed uh, a tri- love triangle there. And at the end, one of them gets revenge or, or kills the other, whatever. That was my original idea. And so I was just going to do that. And so I did the young one actually was my first story. And it was going to be a short story. And I started writing and I was like, well, this isn't going to be a short story. It's more like a novella. But then when it got to be done, I realized, well, okay, well, if if that part ended that way and Cell succeeded or whatever, what happens next? Do, when, when you Does she get what she wants? Does everything turn out perfect? And so I started thinking ahead. And so then I started thinking of the, the adult section came after that. And then I was like, well, I can't write it in that order, though. It can't go in that order. Or when you get halfway through the story, you're all of a sudden going to know too much and you're going to hate a character too much for it to be as tense or intriguing. So I started deciding, okay, well, if this is going to be the whole story. That's when I decided, really, I would start, okay, I'm going to, if I'm going to do the adult section of, of these people's lives as well, it needs to be spliced in. And I have to find a way for them to try to build off of each other and spin off of each other. And uh, so that that's where it came, where I would alternate the time periods. But originally, it was just going to be the kid's story only. Um, but then when I started thinking, well, no, well, what happens later? There's more. These characters, I know them too well. There's something more. Then I was like, okay, it's got to be alternated, and they need to each build on each other where they could each be their own individual story, but they could also help each other answer questions for each other's story. That was that was my intent anyway, was to try to make that happen as I spliced them together. Yeah, and I think you did a great job with that because – I never I never would have guessed that, you know, it started with just the kids. Like when I read it, it read to me like it was always intended to be, you know, alternating timelines. It flowed together very well. Well, that's, yeah, well I'm, I'm glad that's, that, that's that's the hope, I guess, when you're done. And after I did that, I hoped that it would it would work out that way. But in the beginning, the original idea, yeah, was just the. Uh, the kids. But then I knew, man, there's more. I want to know what else happens to Cell. I want to know what else happens to Parker. You know, if you you get away with something like that when you're young, what happens when you get older? Do you compartmentalize it? Do you go with it? Do you feel with so much guilt you admit? You know, like what happens? And so uh, to me, it was real intriguing. And since it was, again, like something I wanted to know, it, it, was, uh, it was fun for me to write it. And it's um, it's uh has a really really uh heavy impact too i think the way you did it was the right way to go completely um, yeah the way they kind of uh, hopefully yeah tried to build up to where each story could stand on its own and then they both though toward the end answered they crescendoed at the same time almost together was the goal uh and that's where that's where i think the impact came from is that really you bought brought both of them 
um, crashing to a finale at yeah. the, almost simultaneously. And when I say crashing to a finale, I mean that in the best of possible ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the thing about the, the ending was, too, and me and my wife were talking about this, like, I talked about her. I walk around here, and I have the luxury of, you know, she's a, she, she, her school she works at is literally outside our backyard. So her and my son, they leave every day. They walk. I have the house to myself a lot. And when I was coming to the end of that story, I, uh, I, I, I didn't know. I knew who was going to go into the climactic scene in that house, but I didn't know who's going to come out. I didn't know how it would end. I, I could have had a good, good ending. I could have had a cop out ending. I had all these options. I honestly had no idea what was going to happen to bring it all together. And so I paced around here for days, uh, talking to my characters pretty much out late you know, uh, in my head. I'll do that. I'll walk around, pace, talk, try to figure it out, to try to figure out exactly how I could tie it all together in the end and end it in a way that I thought fit the characters and who they were. And even if it's not the best cookie cutter thing, that it, it was what I figured that person or the character would 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 have done in those situations yeah and you know without spoiling it for people who haven't read it like when you start to kind of see these characters journeys which that's part of what makes it so impactful at the end is you know over time you like these characters are very well developed and you know you get to the end and you see their you know their journey and like their highs and their lows and like when I got to the end of that like I was totally shocked and you know I I couldn't believe that it went that way because I think a lot of times you know we when we read these books we expect things to you know be resolved a certain way and when when I got to the end of Cricket Hunters in the best possible way like I I was just stunned like I think I was even messaging Shane about it because he finished it a little bit before I did and I was like oh my goodness I was like I you know in the best way I couldn't believe that you know that's kind of where the story went to it totally took me by surprise yeah and it, like I said I I had a general when I go into things I don't I don't have a, a strict outline but I try to have a general outline and know kind of what my characters are going to be what they're going to be like but that toward the end of that I was I felt like, how is this going to turn out? Because there could have been, to me, there could have been multiple things. There could have been, well, you know, like in any story, well, everybody dies. And that's kind of a cop out to me. Or, of course, the person, uh, the good guys win, you know, or there could be. But I so it was it was it was a struggle and it was never really the the uh, I guess the the shock or the twist to it wasn't really even known to me until the end. And I was trying to think about exactly how th- how would this turn out in this situation out of these characters that are in this final in that house at that end? What's going to happen? Who's going to choose what? And uh, but that's part of to me. That's the fun part of writing. Going into that was writing. That was insane. It was I love, you know, I because to me it's like it, to me when I get in the zone writing, it's like watching a movie. It's like I'm watching it happen live in front of me once it gets rolling, and so it was exciting to see what would happen for me too. I do the same thing when when I sit down to write, which I don't as much as you, especially not fiction. But I'm always kind of when when it starts rolling for me, it just is kind of like I'm I'm an observer at that point in time. 
Yeah, it's kind of like you black out. It's like, and I, that's what I would tell my wife. It's like, I, I don't even remember 30 minutes of, I don't, because I'm not a great typer, you know, I look down at the keys. I don't even look at the screen usually. Uh, but there'll be times where I'm like, man, 20 minutes go by. If I know, and I know I'm doing good stuff if like 20 minutes go by and I don't remember looking up or down. It's like I was watching TV pretty much. And I'm trying to keep up with the what I've seen because basically that the characters have taken over and it's moving forward. And I'm just, it may be happening in my brain, but I'm an observer. <laughs> I'm just why I'm trying to keep up with it and make sure I get it down. Um, and of course there are days where I, I, I can go a week and write one paragraph, but those times are awesome when you get in that zone. Yeah, that seems to be like, you know, like there's obviously times where you start to hit a snag, but like you said, when you get in that zone, cause I've had experiences like that with, writing stuff where you know there's there's no greater feeling than that when you can kind of just everything just flows out like that yeah and for, for me it, it may it may it makes everything better on the days i write like that man i'm probably i'm a better dad i'm probably a better husband you know i'm a happier guy afterwards i it uh it's just it's very fulfilling to have that happen and it's it's you know it's hard to do but yeah yeah, I can imagine that would be overall make you feel pretty damn good when you come to the end of a thing and you feel good about it because you, at that point in time, you have to be pretty confident that other people are going to um, enjoy it as well. Yeah, sure. And, that, and that's the hope, you know, that's the whole, I guess, reason for putting the stories out there. I think I'll write them no matter what. But the other if other people are going to read them, I want them really, you know, to just have fun. I want them to enjoy it and try to really, you know, to try to get them to where those moments I was in the zone writing it and I didn't realize what was going on around me. I want them when they read it to be able to fall into that same place. Um, you know, and so when they get out of it, they can have that same feeling of, elation that I had coming out of it and and when it came to the rest of the mundane things of life or going grocery shopping or what you know like just to be able to help them get into that good space and and uh cricket hunters definitely takes you into a good space as far as um for, I don't know how it was from your point as a writer whether you spent most of that book in the zone or not but it sure feels like it to a reader because it's it's basically at least for me and I think for Rich was a two sitting book. There was no there was no possibility of forgetting about that book and taking your time with it. Well, yeah, that's that's awesome. That that seems to be the res I, I get responses of that, and it was kind of the same with the Boulevard Monster. People said they either devoured it or they didn't like it. You know, either they read it real quick and loved it, or they're like, well, it's okay. I, or I. Um, so, but I'm glad that, that you had that experience with it. For me, it was, um, pretty much, I guess I was in the zone for most of it. And I think it's like that for every writer, or, you know, and you know, being a writer too, it's like, there are times where some chapters I would sit down and 2000, 3000 words come out in a day. And then, like I said, I get to one chapter, I'd work on it for three days and have two paragraphs and hate myself through the weekend or whatever, and then come back and eventually I would get it and keep working. Eventually I would get it. So, and then coming back through the rereads and edits is what 
you know, when I, especially that one where I had the two timelines that I had to try to tie together, which I'd never done and try to make it to where they, because I think a lot of times, even there's been books I've read of some of the great people, you know, Stephen King, Joe Hill, where when they jump timelines, a lot of times you, you end a timeline and you're like, all right, I'm going to quit here because I have to restart a whole nother life, a whole nother thing until they start to tie together toward the middle of the end of the story. It's hard to keep people reading once they quit one story and go into another one, even if it's the same characters. Um, and so that was what I was trying to do is to keep the suspense and tension for both going so well that the jump from the younger timeline to the older one wasn't too much of a drag. Like, OK, I'm to the end of the young timeline. I'm just going to put it down and sleep. I'll, I'll start the old guys again tomorrow. You know, and I think that was something that I'd never done before that in the editing and stuff, I tried to work out and make it to where it would read a little more seamlessly between the timeline jumps. And I told even uh, Chad Lutsky who blurbed the the book for me and read it, um, I told him that I was nervous about doing the timeline jumps, you know, that I know that sometimes that doesn't work. So I'm glad it did, I'm glad it did. Yeah, the seamlessness is important to, I think most readers, not just me, but with with me, if the timeline jumps bother me in the slightest, even it's distracting to the point of unreadability for me. Yeah. Um, but with uh, with yours, honestly, most of the time I didn't even really notice the timeline jump. I was just following the stories, you know. That's that well, That was my, of course, that was my intent to try to make it to where they flowed, to where each one ended. And the next one, you were anxious to where the other one had left off. So it's kind of like even leaving each one off where when you jumped in the next one, like, oh, yeah, this was happening. So something always had to be happening to where not just you jump into something boring, try to make it. And to where maybe each one answers a little bit about the other one. Yeah, and I've, I've, read, uh, I've read stories with alternating timelines that – and I'm sure everybody has where you're reading one timeline and it's, this is fantastic. I've got to know what happens next. I've got to know what happens next. And then it's switches to the other timeline and you're kind of like, yeah, I got to slog through this so I can get back to the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've yeah. done that too. And I'll, I will skip to the, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll skip the section to go to the other one. I've done that before too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really bothersome to me. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I was nervous because, you know, having read stuff like that and never written anything where you jumped, I was like, man, I hope I got to try to find a way to do this. If I'm going to weave these together, I got to try to do it in a way that I don't feel the way or I don't leave the readers feeling the way that I feel when I read stories like that. Like I said, what I'll do is I'll get to the next section. I'll just close the book and be like, all right, well, if I have to read all this before I get next to what I want, I'm either going to skip it or I'm just not going to read it anymore. I'm going to close it and do something else. And I didn't want that to have to happen. Yeah, and I think I think one thing that makes it work so well, besides them both being equally entertaining, is like, you know, they more so the older chapters, like it kind of references, you know, the other timeline, like when they were younger and stuff kind of throughout. So they kind of feed off of one another to a degree. Yeah, and, and that's why... Well, I wanted the, I wanted them to hopefully answer some questions, especially the younger one answers some questions to the older one. And, of course, in the end, answers the ultimate question for the older one. 
because as the older one happens, the one I started with, it's more of it's almost more of a thriller or mystery than it is horror. The younger one has the more supernatural, crunderismo, white magic elements to it. Um, but it actually answers the questions for what Sale's going through in the older version of the story. And then he, in the end, of course, answers the ultimate question. The younger version tells exactly why everything is happening in the older one. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you know, I had a question kind of because it seems like some of this stuff, you know, even though it came about later, it seems like Cricket Hunter's it's kind of very deliberate and maybe I'm the only weirdo who noticed this. And I think she knows where this is going, but like, I noticed like on the chapter headings, there was like the crickets and sometimes there'd be like more crickets than others. The directions would change. Is there like a significance to that? Or is it just like a coincidence? I, well, for me, it's a coincidence. I mean, for, because that was something that the editor did, Kenneth Kane. So if you yeah. ever talk to him, he did it and he may have seen something. He never told me why or didn't um, tell me, you know, exactly his reasoning for doing it was. But I've had other people ask me, even my brother, my own brother was asking me like, man, you see how this one's facing, but all three yeah. of them are facing it. Like, and he would ask me, is this supposed to be there? And I would just tell him, you know, I, I uh, the editor, when they did the formatting and stuff at Silver Shamrock and Ken Kane edited it, that's what they came up with. And I, I just, I, I liked it. So I was like, sure, that looks cool. But I never really personally tried to find any significance to it. But yeah, I have, I've been asked that, like I said, even by my brother. He was like, did you, why is it like that? Is that on purpose? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I noticed don't know. But I mean, was- I guess Ken could have, when he did it, he might have you know, done it purposefully. I don't know. We never talked about it, but I'll have to ask him because, yeah, it took me a couple chapters, but I'm like, wait, there's, you know, differing amounts, you know, different, you know, directions that they face. I was like, is it like some kind of like cipher type deal? Or... Sure. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe it was a buildup of the tension between them. I've, I've actually yeah. never, well, I've, I've, ne- I've seen the hardcover course, but I'm, I've never read the whole thing through or looked at everything. I went through, most of the stuff I went through was always on digital, you know, pre-print. Um, but yeah, I, I, for me, there was there was never anything told if there is. But I have been, like I said, I have been asked that before. <laughs> it seems like it probably might be uh, random because I, I, I kind of think Kenneth would have said something to you. Sure. You probably. Know, but- yeah, I'm sure he would have. But I like, like it's one of those happy coincidences thing, you know, something that worked yeah. out good. Yeah, but it, and I think he was just trying to because I know when he did the, you know, Silver Shamrock's first book uh, in the scrape, he put the deer antlers or the deer heads because that was about the 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 white stag, you know, in, in James Newman and Streamsland's book. So I think he was doing something like that with the uh, with the formatting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the numbers thing and where they're facing it uh it was never really never really talked about in that sense yeah I, I was just curious i told shane i was like you know what i was like i'm gonna ask i'm gonna ask about this i was like but i guarantee you i was like i'm probably the only weirdo who noticed so i'm glad that uh you know other people picked up on it because i i felt so like weird even mentioning it to shane <laughs> Yeah, why? <laughs> Sorry, I dropped off there for a minute. Oh, that's cool. 
But yeah, yeah, but there have been, like I said, even my brother, whose name's Shane, coincidentally, he he asked me, and there's been a few other people, I think, on Facebook who brought it up, and I just tell them, you know, I don't know, no idea. But and um, kind of jumping around a little bit, because um, I actually I probably went in like a different path than most where i read cricket hunters first Mm -hmm. then went back to uh boulevard monster but with the boulevard monster i was really intrigued by luther and because Mm -hmm. you know there's so much ambiguity there and you know i won't ask you to like kind of give a definitive answer but he's very unique in that he kind of displays traits of like other of certain like mythological beings, you know, other than like the birds, the birds thing was pretty unique, especially since it was kind of limited to like, you know, blue jays. Sure. And I, I was just kind of curious, you know, what like was the inspiration behind Luther? Well, for Luther, that, that story, again, it's kind of like all my stories in where they started as a short story. And I just thought, um, me and my wife and son, we used to always go, uh, what happens in the book, we'd go down to the historical district of it's Route 66 in Amarillo and take all the change we could get and go down and try to buy an item. And then we were down there one day and I saw missing posters. And I was like, man, what if I knew exactly where every one of these people were? And so that was the original idea. And then there was another thing that happened when being a stay-at-home dad, I was bringing my son home from the library. We'd gone to reading time. He was like two or three years old. And we parked, we came to a stop sign. There was a construction crew to the right. And there was a guy out in this field digging. And there's a group of another guy standing around talking, yucking it up. And the dude way out there digging looked pissed off or kind of secretive. And I was like, man, I wonder why he's digging. These people aren't. And so at some point, those two ideas merged and I started writing the story. And I was like, I started trying to think, okay, well, why would the people be missing? Because I had to come up with that to combine them together. And I thought, well, there's got to be somebody that's making him go missing. And so the idea for Luther came up. And really, he is kind of, it became kind of almost like uh, what you're saying, a myth, like, like a kind of like a vampire, really, is what it was. Somebody or somebody that feeds off of other people's life forms. And he needs those people to feed off of. And, um, but at the same time, he's smart enough in today's society. You know, this isn't uh, the uh, what is it with uh, Brad Pitt and Anne Rice book. You can't just leave bodies in closets and stuff nowadays. There's too much technology. There's too, he needs somebody to help be the fall guy to help take care of him. So that's where Luther came in to need a helper. Um, but it was it was kind of based on the generally, yeah, kind of like on a vampirical myth of a person who needs other humans to feed off of. The Blue Jays came in later. I'd written probably 10,000 words of the book originally. And and again, it, a lot of the, the ideas I got were when I was with my son, so I was home a lot, alone all the time, you know, and he's little, and we're laying there. And we were about to go out of town. We were looking at our, uh, we had some sliding glass doors looking out on a porch. And there was this Blue Jay that kept landing on our back porch swing. And it would come every day, and it was the same one. And it, it got to where we would go out there, and we'd be doing chalk drawings or whatever we're doing in the backyard. And um, it would hop down next to us and hop around. like it, And you could try to scare it. It wouldn't fly off. And blue jays up in the panhandle, if you don't have blue jays where you guys live, I don't know. They're, they can be vicious. I mean, they can be like crows. They can 
they'll rip some other birds' heads off and shit. You know, they're they can be crazy. And it was hopping around. And so we started just calling him Mr. Blue. So then one day we were gonna go out of town and we were looking out there and he was out there for whatever reason. And uh my son asked me, he was probably, I don't know, three or four at this time, said, Do you think Mr. Blue will watch the house for us while we're gone? Because we lived with this alley behind our house and then some um, storage units. And a lot of times we get homeless people that would come into our alley and build fires to sleep because up in the panhandle in Texas, it gets really cold like where you guys at. You'll have a week where you're below 20 degrees. Where I live now in central Texas, it's way different, but up there. And so there would be homeless people live behind our house. And so there was always this constant fear. Our neighbor's house got broken into others. And so we were talking, me and my wife were talking about that. And my son was like, do you think, I think Mr. Blue will watch the house for us while we're gone. And I was about 10,000 words in that story. There was no birds. And I only had Luther and I had, you know, the, the vampirical myth thing. And I was like, well, that's it. There's something missing. That's it. He needs help, you know. And so then if, if Mr. Blue could watch our house, then what if he has a group of verb, birds, whether he's turned them into vampires or somehow they have indoctrinated him into whatever they are he would have watchers and so that's how the actual blue jays came into the into the fold so i had to go back and rewrite the first ten thousand words of the story with that put in um but that's where it came about pretty much yeah that's a pretty cool like that was kind of unique and i was always curious about that because um like i haven't really seen any now i'm based I live in central New York, but when I lived in Pennsylvania, I would see them all the time. And I just thought that was kind of like a cool spin on it. And then, um, two, and we kind of get this through certain, we get it in both cricket hunters and then also in this one, Mm -hmm. you know, this, uh, when I read Boulevard Monster, it kind of reminded me, not necessarily the plot, but kind of like the tone of, uh, the Matt Hayward and Rob Ford collaboration of Penny for your thoughts, where it had like a little bit of everything. Like there was a lot of funny moments in it and then some really, really terrifying stuff in it. And I thought that balance was really cool where, you know, like one minute you could be laughing at something, you know, not necessarily like parts Luther was involved in, but, uh, yeah. Like like with Ryan, he was a joke. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And, yeah, and I thought that was cool, and you kind of get that, too, in, like, uh, the cricket hunters, and, you know, yeah. I was just curious, you know, if that, like, I'm sure it was, like, organic, but, you know, it's horror, but, like, you know, there's a lot of levity to it, but then, like, really dark stuff, do you kind of like putting that contrast into your books? I, 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 yeah, I do. It's not really, I guess I don't try to do it intentionally, but I think that's how people are, right? I mean, there's somebody who can make you laugh one minute and then the next minute he does something fucking so stupid you want to punch him in the face. I mean, there's, (laughs) and that's how real life is, right? I mean, and so to me with my characters and a lot of people are, that's why they don't like them. They're like, oh, well, the character turned out too dark. I'm like, well, no, but that's the way real life is. I've learned through my experiences that sometimes the bad guy wins. Sometimes shit happens you don't like. But that doesn't mean that funny stuff doesn't happen. That doesn't. And so to me, I try to make it like real life. And in real life, one second you can be whooping it up at a bar, but then you go outside and some asshole drives his truck into your car on purpose or I don't know. There could be anything that happens that all of a sudden things flip 
And that's the way I think we all live. So I try to, yeah, it's, I try to make it organic in that way where everything doesn't have to be dire if it's considered horror or mystery or suspenseful. And everything doesn't have to be comedic, too, on the other hand, if it's supposed to be lighthearted. Um, if I want to make my characters seem realistic and relatable, there needs to be an organic twist to their personality because we all wake up some days jovial. Or and one thing could set us off, and usually it's not to the extent of murder, of course, or something yeah. nutty. But it is. I think all of us humans are are like that, and so I try to make the characters like that when I do the scenes. You know, that's one minute you can be laughing with the guy, the next minute you're trying to kill a fucking vampire. I don't know, you know. But just because you're gonna do one harrowing thing doesn't mean you can't also, and you know have jovial times or comical things to me anyway that's the way i see life so that's the way i try to portray it in the in the stories yeah i think that comes across very well and i think that's part of the reason like for shane and myself why we were so drawn to these like both of them you know i just got sucked in and you know i i enjoyed reading it like i'd set it down for a couple minutes you know eat dinner or do something else and i'm like man i can't wait to uh i can't wait to get back to these stories both of them and that, i think that's part of the reason why is you know the characters are so relatable and realistic you know both with the boulevard monster and you know why seth does the things he does and even in the cricket hunters you know why uh cell does the things she does and parker you know and they're not just kind of you know like okay these people are the quote-unquote good people you know they have good moments and bad just like in real life well and and when you and people in real life they you know you make decisions sometimes they're bad sometimes they're good and what will you and in both of them a similar theme i guess would be what would you do to survive what are you going to do to better your family what are you going to do to protect yourself how far can you push your internal morals and guilt how long can you withhold those what what are you willing to sustain if it means betterment of other people or protection of yourself or protection of your family what links will you go to you know, um, I think those are things we all face. And so my characters, you know, face those things, too. Well, yeah, there's because there are like you've already said, um, there are extremes in life. So sure. if you're if you're telling a believable story, there's going to be some extremes there, too. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's what makes it real. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so, too. And another another thing that really, really helps um, with the realism is when when you have a strong setting. Sure. And uh, that's something you you seem to put a lot of and you invest a lot of time into developing your setting almost as intimately as you do the rest of your characters. Sure. And my setting um like I said earlier, I've lived in Texas my whole life. I've lived in, I grew up in the Panhandle, a very small town. Lived in Austin, lived in, my wife grew up down south. So um, all of my stories are set in fictional towns, but based on real towns that I grew up in, in Texas. And so a lot of the, I get a lot of 
um, feedback from if, if, if you were somebody that had known me when I was young, a lot of the road names I use, a lot of the parks I use are names from small towns I grew up in or places I was around. Um, and to me, since I feel that connection to them on a personal level, I think it makes me want to write them. Or I'm, and maybe it makes me write them better. I don't know. But it's because I always choose I choose things that I know I spin it a little bit. But when it comes to like a street name or a street number, I use a address I used to have or. And so I have these significant connections to them that help me visualize it and and want to portray it better, I guess, and make it feel it makes it feel like more home to me, which I hope makes it feel like more of a place of real real life to the reader. Right. Well, it kind of, um, um, I totally lost that train of thought just now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do that from time to time, (laughs) but, uh, I I mean, it, it kind of what it has, I got it back now. (laughs) (laughs) What it, it kind of has the effect of causing your characters to become, a part of this a part of the setting you know it makes it more natural and makes the characters also more believable because they're not they don't feel like you just you know cut and pasted them on there they feel like they belong there and it's because you feel like you belong there i think probably yeah definitely and well i've I've told i've told uh some other people this too that to me, when I finish writing the books or when I write those, to me, that's a real place. That's a real people. That is a real memory. And, I, you know, if I ever get old enough, um, live old enough to lose my faculties mentally, I think I'm going to you're going to come in and ask me, do you remember when you were 10? And I'm going to recite a memory of cells, because to me, that is part of that's real life to me. That's part of my history. That's to me. It's so real. It's almost like I could confuse that for real life if I got if I really got old enough and. You know, it, to me, it's that in, in, into me um, as a real place in a real time and something that really happened um, after I finished writing it, that it could be one of my memories. You know, it could be a, a memory of my childhood, a memory of my life, because to me, it was something that happened, whether it was on the news or in my life. It's it's something that feels like it really happened to me. Um, I get so invested in the place and the time and the characters. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think that really comes through in a lot of the stories because, and I think that's why, you know, readers have gravitated so much to your books is because, like, when I was reading them, it kind of had, like, a very, like, even though there was a lot of bad stuff that happened in each, it was almost, like, comfortable in a way because, like, you could kind of, like, envision yourself there, like, lose yourself in that setting and, like, it felt like, you know, you had been there, or you knew these characters, kind of like how it must have felt when you wrote it. Sure. And it, and even like in, in like the Cricket Hunters, you know, the way I put so much of myself into it and my personal experience, the actual act of cricket hunting is something that that I invented one night um, when we lived in Emerald and up there, it's not, it's real dry. It's not humid. There's very, crickets only come for about a month a year, which is why the book's set in September. And it's only, they come in the spring, they come in the fall because it gets too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer up there in the, in the panel. It's like a desert. And one night I was laying there in bed and I'm a light sleeper. And there was a cricket right outside my, my wife's window and it was driving me insane. I couldn't sleep. 
And finally, about three in the morning, I got up in my underwear and I'm like, I'm going outside and killing that fucking cricket. <laughs> I cannot sleep. I'm going to go mentally. And I can't, you know, it was driving me nuts. So I went out there and we had, it was in the fall. So we had planted some fall trees, uh, like a Texas red oak or something. And so we had the, the bamboo sticks that, you know, they, they put a lot outside the tree and tether it together at Lowe's or whatever was those yeah. sticks to hold it upright. We had some of those leaning against the back porch. And so I grabbed one off of the porch and I got a flashlight and I'm out in the backyard and flip flops some underwear at three in the morning <laughs> and going along the side of the house under our window looking for this cricket because I was so pissed and I wanted to smash it because I couldn't sleep. And for whatever reason, it was, you know, I don't remember what else happened that day. I might remember that, but I was like, oh, my God, it's going to drive me nuts. So I ended up killing it. And then the next morning uh, we wake up. And my wife's laughing, making fun of me at breakfast. And our son, who was young then, maybe five, six at that time, seven. I don't remember how old he was. But he my, he was like, what? My mom was like, your father, he was out in the backyard in his underwear at three in the morning trying to kill a cricket with a stick. And I and and then I said, of course. I was like, because I'm a fucking cricket hunter. You know, I was making a joke for my son. He's like, I want, a, I want a cricket hunt, too. I want a stick. And so I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, I was like, we'll do it again. You can come with me. And so then maybe a day or two later, you know, we went out there and we both, we got sticks and we decorated them. And for him, you know, we went out there and we go out, we started going outside every night around nine when the sun would start to set and listen, and you could hear them chirping in a few places. And again, it's because there were so few crickets up there. Now where I live in central Texas, I have 90 crickets in my backyard going to, and even though we have gone cricket hunting here a few times since we moved here three years ago, but so I think me and him, me and my son were the original and only ever real cricket hunters there were, and it all started. And so then that's what fed into that story. So a lot of me is in that story, like when it comes to uh, Cell Dance, uh, Dillo being driven insane by those crickets. I was, it stopped, that whole idea pretty much spawned from me being, not being able to sleep because that cricket was driving me insane. And the only weapon I had was a stick. And I went out there to try to kill it um, so I could sleep well. And so, of course, that, you know, fed into the story. That's, that's part, of the reason, part of the way I try to put, you know, I think there's a little bit of every author in every story. But that was part of how, you know, yeah, I definitely use my own experiences and and everything in the story. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that, because that was one of the things I was just getting ready to ask is what the significance of the cricket specifically was. Yeah, and then, well, I think they too, they they do symbolize a lot of things. You know, have you, there's a new M. Night Shyamalan show coming out and uh, on Apple Plus. I don't know what it is. I forget what it is, but they put out a little blurb, a little ad. And on that one, it was uh, a cricket comes out of a bathroom tub and a little girl's in the bathroom and she turns around and the caption is something like, well, when a cricket comes, bad things are going to happen. So it's kind of cool. And yeah, because yeah, it's, uh, it's bad things do happen. Yeah. Um, you have some you have some lighthearted moments, which I think, you know, are crucial to, you know, just give your readers a breather sometimes because it's a fast moving story. Sure. Um, but those lighthearted moments are count- countered by some pretty heavy darkness, too. Um, and which was you, you were talking about. uh I can't remember the uh, great aunt's name now. Dillo, yeah, yeah. Dillo, but that that whole thing, that vendetta against her and the whole process of what happens to her. Um, sure. I, I 
that was a that was very 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 dark, but um, it was also really really super crucial to the story. I think. Yeah, and and like uh, well, and what happens with her with you know, and like to me, there was there was actually I you know I I got about what happened with Cell and the, it'd be a spoiler alert for anybody that wants to turn off, but for what Cell does with the cat. Um, having to hurt a cat in that, you know, you have to imagine from my point of view, it wasn't, and I got, I actually got hate email saying that I had animal cruelty and all this. I got, when it first came out, I was kind of flummoxed because I, I was getting some messages and, and things saying that I had animal torture. And I'm like, wait a sec, you know, you have a 14 year old girl who was raised to believe that one of the two people in life, she was a abandoned by her mom and dad she's raised by her grandma and aunt she has this real strong connection with her aunt and now her aunt's dying because somebody else that has supernatural powers that she believes are real whether they are or not that's up to you um are helping kill one of the most important people in her life and she thinks i can help this person so what she goes and does is basically to help save one of the two people in her life that have been there for her that she loved um it was never, you know, meant to be, oh, well, I'm just going to go uh, cut something up for shits and giggles or kill something for this or that, you know. Let's right? murder I, a fucking cat, huh? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it was, but to me, yeah, it was, it's very interesting. And you got to think about how many other people at 14 years old, if they've been taught a certain thing, I mean, you know, what? there's tons of religions and cultures in the world that make sacrifices to help try to achieve purity or try to um cure something I mean they're they're all over so it to her it wasn't oh it's a cat somebody's pet it was no this is a an, a thing that has supernatural powers that's helping somebody kill somebody i love and i want to help the person i love so and right. i understand people and i've had tons of I've, I've had multiple cats i grew up my my parents uh my mom and then we raised blue persians actually and my mom would breed them and sell them so their blue persians are real i guess little fancy cats but uh, and I love cats. Me and my wife had two cats. Um, so, and, but I did. I got some. I got some flack for the supposed animal. Well, it was animal cruelty. But I, I, whenever I get those, I just don't answer. I try not to. Yeah, I think because to me, I, in my head, it wasn't about any. It wasn't like I said. It wasn't for. For yeah, for one thing, it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, it was a very realistic response on her part. Yeah, if you um, and I think yeah, and and some people might see it different because you're also reading her as an adult and you confuse. But I mean, if you look at it in the context, she's a 15 year old girl who was raised to believe a certain thing. And, right. I mean, and religion is very strong, and their religion may not be Christianity or any other structure, but what she was raised in was basically a religion, and you learn and you believe in it. You know, and she believed it and she did what she could to try to help. And that's the way I saw it when I was writing it anyway. Plus, I think it's important to take away from it the fact that it's a two dimensional fucking sheet of paper with an invented cat on it. That exactly. That you pretend like it gets killed. You know, <laughs> I, you know what? I never I never got any emails about people getting their fucking eyes gouged out with a stick or a human, you know, kid, anybody getting killed like humans only about. Uh, that yeah because it's all fictional and uh so 
it's okay to violate the people, but leave the fucking cat alone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Ew. So yeah, and um, kind of going off that, like you said, like it's not like she really reveled in what she did, like no. you know. No, but, for um, her it was to help somebody she loved. And what would you help some do to help somebody you love, you know, if, if you thought something like that was going on, whether you believe the cat had power or not, she did what she thought was best to help save somebody's life, somebody she loved. Yeah, and I and I think that kind of concept too, like even with like the uh like the Boulevard monster, even yeah. like when that whole storyline gets going too, like you're at first you're like, well, why wouldn't this guy, you know, just go to the cops or why wouldn't he just, you know, do whatever? But when it's not just you that you're worried about, sure. you kind of get wrapped up in there. Like, yeah, he had a choice and he could have done things a certain way, but he was thinking about his family because he didn't want them to be in danger. Yeah, and that's 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 the theme that's similar between both of them is is um, what would you do to protect your family? What would you do to help your family? Because in both instances, like with Sel, she wanted to help her aunt, and so if she had to do something a little rough to do it, she would do anything to help her, even if it means making a bad uh, a rough choice. And the same with Seth, he's like, well, I'm not only protecting my family by not going to the cops. I am helping them because look at all this money we have. Now we're a low middle class family, non-educated, work construction, work at a, a chain restaurant. We live in a duplex. Now we can get a house. Now we can get a car. Now our daughter can go to college. All I have to do is, you know, suck up my guilt, hide a few, lie a few times and go bury a few bodies or whatever. I don't have to kill anybody. I don't have to turn anybody. So how easy is it to rationalize? You know, helping your family, protecting your family. What are you willing to do to do that? And of course, he reached his breaking point eventually, just like I guess Cell does. But I think all of us have to face it's a it's a common human theme of what would you what are you willing to do to protect your family? What are you willing to do to help your family? Um, and I think and that's the, a common theme the, in both. Yeah, because the answer to that is almost always any anything. Yes. Yes. Um, and and in that case, uh, having them do something drastic like that, once once again using that word, just adds to the impact of the story. Yeah. Um, and and it also fed into a super important scene that occurs later on, which I won't spoil. Sure. Um, but it was uh, related to the cat. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And and I think like again in that if you take uh, the Carandarismo in that religion or in that folklore whatever you want to call it because there's a ton of people down in in northern Mexico and in in South they they believe this as strongly as people believe in Jesus they believe these things to them it's a religion and in those in those um, beliefs cats and other animals actually not just cats you know do have they're more than just a pet that sits on your lap that's cute and you feed. They have other abilities that we can't comprehend, but that can benefit other people. And that's that's something that people really do believe. And so the culture that Cell grew up in and the people she grew up around and the way her grandma and great aunt were raised. 
And really, I mean, when it comes to your like, when you're talking about religion, I mean, the atrocities that have been committed in the names of God and Allah, yes, kind of make the poor cat pale by comparison, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that was the that was the whole thing is that I wanted to I wanted the magic to be seen as a religion, not as a like I said, uh, a Harry Potter, I can turn into an animal, I can fly type thing. It's more, you know, the same way any religion, really. I mean, makes the Jewish people used to make sacrifice lambs for atonement. Nowadays, Christians go and pretend they're eating uh, a body of a person for atonement. Um, you know, she was just trying to do something to help better her family member and trying to... So to me, I don't know, those religious things. But I understand how some people could be offended by it or put off by it, and that's okay, but it's never intended on my part. It's just, I would never put anything in any of my stories for shock value or for violence value. I, I would never do that. Um, it always has to play a part in the plot and in a part of what I think my characters would do based on how they were raised, what their age is, where they're at in, the, in their life, things like that. Um, yeah, and it kind of that talking about that magic versus that Harry Potter, you know, uh -huh. wave your wand and you know, blah blah blah. Um, use your words, Shane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that it's uh, it brings a level of ambiguity to the story. Um, that I don't know whether that's intentional or not, where I'm. Because the readers kind of, and this is a minor spoiler, kind of always going, okay, is the, but is this magic real? Yeah. Or, or is it just something they believe, um, but that's really just a myth? Yeah, and to me, it's it, it again, it's it's more like the religion thing. I, I I intentionally never I leave that in your hands as the reader. It, to me, it's the same as. Um, you know, again, you have people praying for a miracle because one of their loved ones is dying of cancer, right? And all of a sudden, the cancer goes away and, go, and, and it's cured. And they're like, oh, there must have been divine intervention. Our prayers worked. We prayed for a miracle and it happened. Well, instead of prayers, they do spells. Now, do you think it was coincidence? Sometimes cancer goes away. Sometimes it doesn't. Was it medical? Was it not? Uh, and I think that's how I, I tried to do this in this story to make it to where it does it's it's more of a religion rather than an actual power. It's a belief system is what it is, because in real life, the people I've met that actually do this believe in it. Does it work or not? Most people would say no. I, you know, I'm skeptical of that. But you can say that about any religion where it, it's based on faith. Do you believe or not believe? And that's what I wanted to make this show it more as, yeah, they believe it. So to them, it's real. The same way to a family member who's going to lose a loved one believes that there was a miracle because of their prayers saved their loved one. These people believe that these spells saved them, whether it happened or not. That's up to everybody around them. But to them, it's real. To them, it's belief. To them, it's, you know, it happened. What they're doing works. The same way people that pray, they think that works. So that's the way I did try to convey it as kind of ambiguity there. What do you think it is, you know? And yeah, I think a lot of people might take it the wrong way and think, well, they hear the word magic or spells and they think it has to be 
Harry Potter, just to use that term again, or I don't know, practical magic where there's actual witches. But in, in this story, I tried to do it as real life as I could. Um, it's a belief system more than it is any kind of, I don't know, uh, supernatural real thing that we can prove. And and it leaves the and it leaves the reader with a choice that's very similar to um, like what you were talking about about what whether you believe that the prayer made the cancer go away, sure, um, or or it was just a coincidence, um, sure. It, in life, we make the choice to believe either it's d- divine intervention or it's just a coincidence, yes. and you leave the reader with the same choice. Yeah, that was definitely the intent. That was definitely the intent. Because I didn't want it to seem like for sure they're doing it. But I but I wanted you to think to know that for them to be real characters and be raised that way, they believe it's real. Whether you believe it as the reader or not is up to you. But I wanted to try to make it clear that Cell believes it. You know, Yesenia believes it. uh, And Tia Dillo believed it. The kids, when they were younger at least, partook in it and believed it the same way they believe in Santa Claus, Reefster Bunny. Uh, they believe it. Whether you do as the reader or not is is up to you. But I hope that I conveyed the characters believe it. They believe in it. And, yeah, that's what otherwise the, the things that the characters do, especially sell, um, mm-hmm. would be totally totally unbelievable if you hadn't conveyed the fact that she really completely believes this well yeah and she'd be she'd be a fucking lunatic really right she'd be be crazy but but the (laughs) fact that she she's doing a lot of it in the name of religion and like you said earlier how many atrocities have been committed in the name of religion so whether it's on a small level or a grand level, she believes this and she's acting on what she's been taught and what she believes and what she thinks works and what she thinks helps. So, yeah, it definitely makes her choices to me seem very, uh, I don't know, plausible, believable, normal in her situation. And the thing is, though, most people don't grow up like that. So to them, it's crazy or to some people. But. From her point of view, you put yourself in her shoes. And her responses are perfectly natural, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I was just curious, too, Jeremy. um, I know your background, you know, you kind of started with, like, short stories and stuff. And now now this is your second novel. I was just curious... Do you have like a preference for what format you write in or like do you gravitate more towards short fiction? I know they each have probably have their, you know, benefits and things you like about them. But is there like a style that you tend to gravitate more, whether as a writer or a reader? Sure. I think as 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 both a writer and a reader, I like longer stuff now. Um I, I did short stories for so long, and I'll do short stories like the one Justin's favorite for the Midnight Anthology. I do them, but I'll only usually write one or two uh, short stories a year now. I used to write only short stories, and I probably wrote 250 of them in a six- to eight-year period. And maybe I burned myself out, but I, that's where I was learning, I think, how to write when I was doing all the slush reading and and whatnot. But now I, I get to where every idea I have, like um, – starts out as a short story but then 
there's always way more to it that I want to know. And so I love I love the longer. I love writing books, novels, because I get to know the characters more. I get to explore them more. I get to see more. And I prefer that over short stories. But occasionally I will get an idea that I know there's nothing to it. It's more impactful as just a quick punch to the gut rather than a good long story. And reading wise, the same thing. Like I, I like reading novels and getting immersed and losing myself and waking up the next day. And just the first thing I think of when I wake up is, OK, what do I have to do today? What part of my day am I going to have open to get back into that? And that's the first thought I have is how do I get back into that world, into that story? And with a short story, you know, you can't do that. You usually read it in one setting. So I like definitely like the longer lengths better. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. Both both with uh, the short stuff and the long stuff. I I love a good short story, but the the longer forms, novellas and novels, are where it's at for me for the most part. Um, that they they're the ones that stick with me and resonate with me. Yeah, and I think it's just because what you get to know the characters a little more, you get to know a little deeper. And I love short stories, too. I mean, there's some like some of Jack Ketchum's first short stories are some of my favorites ever, you know, uh, that I remember to this day. I'll remember almost I can recite it to you, but I prefer reading the longer, the longer stuff. Ketchum Ketchum was great at it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Ramsey Campbell's another guy who can write the hell out of a short story when he chooses to. Right. Yeah, one of the first anthologies I ever bought, and I was working at a Barnes & Noble, early 2000s, uh, in Amarillo, and it was the very first October Dreams, and they each have a story in there. Ketchum has Gone, and Ramsey Campbell, I think, has Pork Pie Hat, something, uh, but, and those were two of my first experiences with both of those, and I still have that anthology this day, and every October I get it out and read short stories out of it, but yeah, they're both, they're both awesome out of it. I'm pretty sure you're right on that the Campbell story. So it's something to do. Yeah, I think pork. it's yeah, pork pie hat or I don't know, it's a I think you're that's de- it. Yeah, you're right on the tip of it if you're not nailing it definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way too like as you guys with like I tend to gravitate more towards longer stuff, but I've been uh getting more into shorter stuff, but I also think it's kind of funny because, uh, Jeremy, you just said you used to work at Barnes and Noble. I, I think yeah. I teased, uh, Sean Hamill when he was on, like I, you yeah. guys both, you guys both worked for the competition. I used to work at a Borders. Oh, cool. I used to love Borders. In, I used to go, when I lived in Austin, uh, we used to go to Borders all the time. You know, I, I love Borders. I worked at Barnes. I worked at Barnes and Noble when we first moved to Amarillo, and I really had the best job ever. I I didn't really know they had. They make you always start out being a cashier, but then they let me. Yeah. They the shelvers quit, so I got to be a shelver, and uh, so I got to show up two hours before we open. And my job was basically to walk through the whole store by myself with nobody there and shelve books and look at the new books we got in and set up end caps and displays. Man, and I I loved that. It was. I don't know. It's like walking around, you know, you're by yourself in the bookstore for two hours, just getting to see everything new there. And it was awesome. Yeah, I I feel like, too, you know, I could be wrong, but like a lot of readers, I think, at one point or another have 
had some kind of job like that at a bookstore, whether it be like an indie or the bigger chains. But unfortunately, I never got to because I always wanted to be like uh, one of the salespeople on the floor where they got to like give recommendations to people. But yeah, I, yeah. I was stuck at the cash register. <laughs> yeah, that's how I everybody had to start at Barnes and Noble. And I hate I, I really would rather not talk to people most of the time, which is why I think I love the shelver job where. I got to go before anybody was there, and yeah, I, uh, I had that. And but actually, my first job ever with books, though, when I was in middle school, I got to be a library aide, you know. And so I signed up. You always have to have some kind of weird. And this would have been, I guess, in the '80s, where it was like some kind of weird, other than your core classes. And I signed up to be a library aide, and so I got to spend every morning, first period, pushing VCRs and TVs to the classrooms that had rented them, and then shelving books. And that was my first ever experience kind of working with books. And I loved it. Um, just being in that, being in the library pretty much with one other aid all morning by yourself, just shelving books and, uh, and doing stuff on microfiche back then, I guess. And it was cool. I had a similar job, but uh, at a Rite Aid drug. It was Payless then, but. Oh, yeah, Payless. Uh, but uh, yeah, they started everybody out in freight, and then you could you could graduate to the cash register if you chose to go that direction. But I stayed on freight for the entire time I was there. I I never wanted to like you. I I could I could go in before the store opened, run my whole shift without ever talking to a customer, and you know earn my paycheck and go home. And yeah, that, was, that's what I would prefer. Uh, but with the hardest job I ever had, and it'll sound funny, but the hardest job I ever had, I worked at Whole Foods for about five years when I lived in Austin, was going to college. And uh, the hardest thing about it was I worked on the front end and I was a cashier and then I became a manager on the front end. And But I had to deal with, you, you would see about 350 different faces a day was the average. And I would go home more tired than if I ran a fucking marathon because to me, it's exhausting mentally and emotionally to be on all day in front of that many people and have to be nice and have to engage. It was, it was rough. So I definitely preferred, yeah, like the shelving or, or working at places where I'm in the background too. Yeah, it's It, it is grueling. I was a bartender and waiter for virtually decades and you finish almost every single shift with several cocktails yeah exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i i can definitely relate to that too because it's kind of funny because all of us here kind of, it seems like at least are more like introverted but i had yeah. a job like that too where and this is another thing that i've only noticed recently well even when i was younger but sometimes when you would read author bios like you would see that they would, you know, before writing or while writing, they had, you know, varied types of jobs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I kind of had that same experience. Like now I work in, you know, the IT world. But prior to that, I worked at a Apple packing facility and I'm kind of an introvert, too. And I I worked my way up and became like a shift lead like yeah. a man like a manager out on the floor and like you said it was exhausting because 
you know, we had like 40 some employees that you'd have to like interact with every day. And I just think it's kind of funny, like that we all kind of found ourselves in those situations. Being yeah, like it, introverts. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it is. It's exhausting to have to deal with that many people. And you're kind of responsible, like as a shift manager, definitely you're having to, you have to worry. They're coming to you about schedules, problems that happen with other people, things, you know, it's, it, yeah. and if you're not a very social person, which I'm not a very social person normally, uh, I know and it's kind of like after working retail or having a job like you were describing long enough, you learn how to turn it on. So I know how to be that for a while now, but I don't think I could ever go back to doing that full time as a job like I did when I was in my 20s at Whole Foods. I think it would destroy me, you know, <laughs> like I couldn't yeah. do it every day, all day, but um Every now and then, yeah, you know how to turn on the social uh, part of you and do it. And and, and you do. It becomes a knee-jerk thing to turn the, turn the social on. It's like that smile was fucking fake the whole time I was tending bar, but it was there. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of <laughs> like you learn how to play the social game in a weird way. You learn how to, okay, I know how to do it, but it does. I don't like it, and it affects me, but I know I have to because I need a paycheck. I got to have money because I have rent. Uh so yeah so i have to people whether i fucking like people or not yes <laughs> yes <laughs> definitely i um what was like oh we were talking about uh different forms of of writing as far as novels and novellas and stuff but what i was curious about is um do you read much outside of your genre oh yeah yeah i i'm a i'm an I'm an ID channel addict. That channel, I love true crime, right? And I know you guys are into crime. But I love mysteries. Um, so I read, I love Westerns too, actually. I love, I, I try to read, that was one of the first advice I ever learned as a writer was um, read outside your genre. Try to read outside. And so I've always um, tried to read. I, I like to read, of course, horror and indie horror, and I, I read it, but I always try to alternate, and I love, I'm a mystery, and that's what I think maybe come across in some of my writing is that I love things like thrillers like Harlan Coben's and and mystery writers as well, and true crime. Like I said, I'm a uh, ID channel freak when it comes to, I've seen every true crime story ever, even when they start to rename them as something else the next season because they're running out of stories. They're like, oh, <laughs> it was called Object of Murder last year. This year it's called What ha uh, Week or Nighttime Disappear. And it's like, wait, this is the same story. You're just repurposing <laughs> a different title. I've seen this three times. I know about that, per you know, like, uh, but yeah, I love, and I think even, um, I love reading outside of the genre. The only one I'm really not that into is, and I read some is, would be the sci-fi fantasy, but I think I love reading Westerns, mysteries, thrillers, uh, just general fiction. My wife is a, she's been a English teacher for 17 years and she loves literature, right? She loves old school literature. So I read that sometimes too, cause I'm always uh, immersed in that because of her. Um, one of my favorite writers ever, I think, is really good, is John Hart, and he writes mysteries. And some of his books, his book, The Last Child, is one of my favorite books ever. I've read it like four times, and it won the Edgar Award for Best Novel. And he's the only author that's ever won the Edgar Award two years in a row, which is, you know, similar awards for the Horror Writers Association, but for the Mystery Writers Association. But I think books like that, I, I love to read stuff like that, uh, mystery and true crime and Biography, I love biographies too, nonfiction. 
Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> I was laughing because, like you said, the ID channel. Like, I like that stuff, too. But yeah. my my wife, she, uh, she was the big ID channel person. And she'll always, like, post, like, jokes. Like, sometimes you'll see, like, those, uh, like, Facebook memes or whatever where it's about, like, the ID channel. And it was like, you know, like, oh, if I ever, you know, go missing or whatever, it's because my wife <laughs> watches the ID channel. Or, right. And I used to watch all those with her, too. And, you know, it is pretty fascinating. But, yeah, like... Uh, Shane and myself, we want to kind of, we always wanted to do a 50-50 horror crime split. And I think going into the year, we're going to start covering more crime. But uh, two, I don't know if you read these. I just wanted to recommend them to you because I'm sure. reading the last one now, actually. But uh, have you read any of uh, J.D. Barker's thrillers, like The Fourth Monkey Killer? Yeah, I read, I read the first one, The Fourth Monkey yeah. Oh man. Sequel. I know he had a sequel uh, to it. Um, yeah. I did read the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a yeah. It's a trilogy, and each one gets better. Like I'm. I started the third one today. Um. It's called like the sixth wicked child. It goes number sequence. Like I think the second one was the fifth to die. Okay. Yeah. I I started it today and. It's like 600 pages. I think I'm already at like 300. So yeah, if you like the first one, you'll yeah. really you'll really dig the other two. Like it gets pretty crazy. Cool. Yeah, I'm definitely I'll definitely check them out. Yeah, I read the I remember when the first one came out because I remember uh, he also had a his first book right was 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 yeah. kind of like Boulevard nominated for best first novel and it was more of a horror novel. Yeah, forsaken. Forsaken. Yeah, yeah, and I remember reading that one. And so then when he kind of uh, went over to the more uh, mystery thriller side, I read that first one, but I've never read the other ones. Yeah, and you know what's funny, and because like I think Forsaken, like on the, because I bought like the Kindle version, it says like book one in the Shadow Cove saga, and then Uh he kind of he jumped into these. I'm hoping he gets back to those, and I think he might. Either he might or it's, you know, a coincidence, but, like, throughout sure. each of these, he references the writer from that book, Forsaken. Like, some of the characters will be like, oh, you know, I'm reading the latest Thad McAllister novel or whatever. Oh, cool. yeah, so I'm hoping he comes back in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Those tie-ins, yeah, they're always cool. Um, oh. sorry. Oh, uh, no, you're good. So, um, since we're uh, making book recommendations and you like Westerns, have you read uh, S. Craig Zoller? I have not. I... Uh, that's, uh, that's a guy that you, you would definitely like, I think. Um, what is it? Zoller? So I'm going to write it down. Yeah, Z-A-H-L-E-R. Okay, cool. Um, read a, a Congregation of Jackals. Okay. But uh yeah, it's it's amazing. It's brutal as hell. Cool. Um and he does a lot of films too. He did Cell Block 99 or Brawl in Cell Block 99 and Dragged Across Concrete and a bunch of other really really brutal movies. Cool. Yeah, I'll def- I'll definitely check it out and get one, get a copy. 
So kind of building off that, Jeremy, um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if you've already started work on another book, but just out of curiosity, other than horror, is there any other genre that you would like to write one day? Yeah, I mean, I think I would I write, you know, whatever ideas I get. Um, but I think and I would kind of, you know, like I kind of everything I do, I think is kind of a mix of genres anyway. I mean, yeah kind of horror, kind of thriller, kind of, it's just a, a swirl. And I think a lot of people do that starting like with, of course, Lansdale, another Texas guy kind of coined that, you know, we don't, I'm not a genre guy. I, I, it's a mix of genres. Um, but I would, yeah, I would, I would, I have ideas. I probably have like 20 different book ideas. And the one I'm working on right now, I wouldn't even call it horror. And that's why, and even, uh, with the Cricket Hunters, when I was going to publish it, I was telling my wife, I was like, man, the people that like my first book are not going to like this one. They're way different. It's, you know, one has supernatural for sure, all this weird shit. The other one, it's, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity. It's kind of, and it's and uh, more almost thriller-like. And, but that's the idea I have. So that's that's just what I go with. But I would write anything. I have ideas to write. Um, the one I'm writing now, actually, that I'm, that I'm working on is set in the 1940s. And... But it's and, and it's said here in Texas, of course, and it spawns off the idea of that I've been working on where there were concentration camps here or they weren't concentration camps. They were internment camps during World War Two. And they would actually bring the German and Italian soldiers over to the U.S. And we had them in prisons here, you know, and as as growing up, I never knew that. I don't you know, it wasn't common knowledge. When I learned that uh, when I grew up in the panhandle, there were uh, internment camps that were right down the, you know, a few hours away where there were thousands of Nazis living or Italians. To me, that was fascinating. So the idea of the story I'm right now is, is working off of that, you know? Yeah, I'm open to writing any time period, anything. If I have an idea for it, if something intrigues me, then I want to, I'll go for it. We have some of those camps here too. We have, ours were uh, housed um, Asian people. Yeah, um, yeah. During World War Two, and it didn't—you didn't have to be Japanese. You just had to be Asian, and you'd get your ass thrown in there because that's kind of how we roll in this country, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 right, yeah. Well, on mm. the ones that were in Texas, the one that was by where I grew up was actually the second largest internment facility board built in 1942, and it housed at first Germans and Italians, soldiers captured mostly in North Africa. And then, but and then they had to separate them because the Germans and the Italians were fighting too much and getting in arguments. So they had to separate the Germans about an hour away up there in the Panhandle. But there was an internment camp, about 3,000 Italians, and most of them though were artists, which is cool. And this is how I learned about them. They actually would work in the fields up there because uh, all the the men, you know, had gone off to war from here. So they had they were labor starved, the farmers. So they would get these prisoners to work in the fields basically for free, almost like prisoners. And then some of them, though, were real artistic, and they built, they actually ended up building a church and painting the inside with nothing but murals. And now it's a historical marker up there in the Panhill, a small little church, probably the size of two bedrooms uh, in this small little town. But people go there, and there's festivals there every year, and it was built by these Italian POWs. Um, and so anyways, that all that, when I learned that, was real intriguing. So, of course, and then I spawned ideas left and right and all off of there. But that, the story I'm working on now has to do with that set back in that time period. And one of those camps and a prison outbreak and all kinds of shit happening. But. Uh, sounds extremely interesting to me. Um, yeah. 
the thing that I've learned um, since I started reading you, which Cricket Hunters was my very first Hepler, except for a short story or two. Yeah. Uh, won't be my last, but what I've learned, and I'm telling this more to our listeners than to you, although you get the benefit of hearing it whether you want to or not, and that is <laughs> that, is that uh, Jeremy Hepler is a serious talent. And if you if you're not reading them, you need to unfuck that as soon as possible. <laughs> well, thank thank you. Yes, that is that's awesome. I know that's like that's your highest compliment. That's awesome. It's like a yeah. It's a okay. we were talking about that on Twitter the other day. I I think it's a generational thing, but we all think seem to have like I stole it from somebody. Brian Keene stole it from somebody. That somebody yeah. stole it from somebody. So it's. <laughs> I think it just comes from us all being a bunch of old fuckers. <laughs> yeah, well, I love it. I, I'm that's awesome. It makes me makes me feel good. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, that said, uh, do you want to tell us anything more before we wind this thing up and let you get on with your life? No, I think. I think I'm good, man. I love talking to you guys. Thanks a lot. You know, for, for writers like me and indie writers, exposure is the hardest thing really to get. Um, so getting on podcasts like y'all's and you guys putting this stuff out there, that that I really appreciate it. It's awesome to be a part of it, to be invited. Uh, you're welcome anytime, man. I could. Yeah. I was just telling Rich in, a, in our Discord server, we could talk to you all night long if it wasn't for the fact that my wife would cut personal parts off of my body. (laughs) 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 Well, I might have the same problem, too. I know my wife's out there with my son. They're like, what the hell? You know, I said you were going to be on there like an hour or so. So I don't know what they do. (laughs) Longer it goes. I'm lucky. My my wife's already asleep, I think. (laughs) Plus, plus Rich Rich is in his fucking closet. (laughs) I heard you mention that on another one. Yeah. yeah. Every once in a while, I uh, I either use our spare bedroom or like if we have guests or something. I oh, my wife just texted my phone. (laughs) She's out of sleep, so (laughs) busted. (laughs) Pretty much. So yeah, that was an in-case exclusive right there. But yeah, Jeremy, it was great having you on, and uh, yeah, we can't. We're looking forward to you know your next book. Uh, we're big fans, and mm-hmm. congratulations on the release of Cricket Hunters. I'm sure the response has been pretty positive. I know we love the hell out of it. Cool, yeah, it's been it's been great. It's always good to get something out there and for people to enjoy it. Well, all right, then I think uh, we'll go ahead and wind this up and we'll all survive tonight, um, hopefully. And uh, like I said, anytime, man, as soon as you're ready to release another book, let us know. We'll get you on in advance and get some advance buzz for it. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks a lot, guys. Right on, man. Have a good night. Have a good night. Okay, before I flip the off switch, I wanted to tell you about something ultra special we're going to be doing on December 7th. Um, We're going to partner with Andrew Cole to bring something ultra special to you and uh, ultra unique. Um, It'll be an international giveaway 
and you'll have a seven day window in which to enter so stay tuned uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is right now but I can tell you that you are going to want in on this so that's all for now take it easy guys out where the fuck is the stop recording button Rick